thanks to our title sponsor, National University. National University is committed to supporting veterans, active duty personnel, and military families through flexible online courses and master's and doctoral programs in high-demand fields, providing excellent career advancement opportunity. National University is a yellow ribbon school that proudly accepts the post-9-11 GI Bill and goes the extra mile by offering additional assistance to cover expenses that may not be covered by the GI Bill. To learn more, visit nu.edu forward slash veteran. This is the Fighter Pilot Podcast, Episode 42. Just in time for its debut in DCS World, courtesy of Heat Blur Simulations, this week we're talking everyone's favorite fighter made popular by everyone's favorite flying movie. You know the one. Hello, everyone, and welcome to the Fighter Pilot Podcast, the internet radio show that explores the fascinating world of air combat, the aircraft, the weapon systems, and most importantly, the people. I am your host, Vincent Aiello, call sign Jello, here with my co-host, Sunshine. How's it going, dude? Well, Jello, how about you? I am doing just great, and we are going to cover all three of those, the aircraft, the weapon systems, and the people, with today's aircraft. What are we talking about today? Today is the mighty F-14 Tomcat. Indeed. Now, Sunshine, on this show, as you know, whether it is a retired three-star admiral or a MiG killer or any DV, such as our lovely wives, we always skip all the little stuff in the beginning and cut straight to the interview. Now, based on, I would argue, the aircraft, maybe not so much these two knuckleheads sitting whoa, next to whoa, us. Whoa, 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 DVs, right? Uh, sorry, sorry, DVs. I think we should cut straight to the interview. What do you think? Great idea. All right, well, I will introduce the gentleman sitting next to me. This is retired United States Navy Commander Roy Wiley, call sign SIF. What's up? Hey, Jello. Nice to see you again. Yeah, it's good to be here, and uh, thanks for coming in. Thank you. Thank All you. right, awesome. Sunshine, who do you got next to you? Jello, next to me, I've got Navy Captain John Cosmo Dupree. What's up, guys? Glad you're here. Well, welcome, you two. We are going to have a great discussion here on your two favorite aircraft, I presume, certainly a lot of the listeners. And you know the deal. You've heard the show. You've seen the outline. We're going to talk about what it was designed to do, what it does well, a whole litany of stuff. And then, Sunshine, just so we don't get too many listener questions built up, I propose we hit them with a couple of our listener questions at the end. What do you think? I love it. Let's do it. All right. Well, first thing before we get to the aircraft, you guys, is we need to find out a little bit about you. Otherwise, the listeners won't care. I already don't care. So, Sif, uh, we'll get to your call sign at the end, so don't don't do that part Easy. yet. But please, in a couple minutes or less, tell us where you're from, what have you done in the military, what are you doing now, and if you have any legacy military experience, your dad, grandpa, or something like that, let us know about that, too. Sure. I grew up in Julian, California, right up there in the mountains here, and uh, probably pie. you guys have gone up there, apple pies, what everybody mm-hmm. remembers, maybe gold mining and something like that. Ended up going to uh, uh, the United States Naval Academy. And then after the Naval Academy, uh, went into aviation, thank the Lord, because I would have been a terrible swill. Um, <laughs> so so I made my way that way, and uh, my first squadron was uh, an F-14, uh, um, the VF-102 Diamondbacks. And then after the Diamondbacks, we transitioned to the F-18, um, E and F, or in this case the F. And then I went to Top Gun, and then I've been in pretty much every type of airplane. So I, I like to say I'm a... I'm just shy of a thousand hours in everything. Okay, um, and that's almost the truth. Except I think I actually have more hours in the Charlie. Sorry. Oh gosh, no, so, I love the Charlie. So. All right, that's all good. And so uh, you retired after how many years of service? So uh, twenty-two uh, post the academy, twenty-six okay. with it. All right, congratulations. Thank you. Thanks for your service. And what are you doing now? 
So I am waiting for a call. Okay. <laughs> As many of you guys know, I'm hoping to go into the airlines, and uh, I've got a couple of interviews set up, and I, and I literally just retired two weeks ago. So All right. Congratulations. Congratulations. And uh, that's awesome. Thank you. Cosmo, tell yes. us a little about yourself. I am, too, from a small town. Uh, I came from Mount Shasta, California. Excellent. So stone's throw from Oregon. And I went to the Naval Academy as well. Class of '96, so one year before '97 uh, minus one. Before all three, of you guys are naval. Yeah, cat. yeah, we got I'm some boat here. here. Yeah. This is Small awful. Trade all right. School. Anyway, sorry. Yeah, so I studied uh, engineering in school, and aviation was kind of where I was leaning towards, and I ended up in Pensacola, and I was fortunate enough to get Tomcats out of flight school. And I ended up in Oceana, Virginia, for a tour, and I was in the same squadron as SIF uh, over here, Diamondbacks. And uh, after that tour, I just barely eclipsed uh, 1,000 hours in the jet on okay. our, our second cruise. I ended up in Lemoore and basically stayed in Lemoore for the next four or five squadrons oh, dear. in the Super Hornet. Okay. Now I'm the XO of the uh, Naval Base Coronado down here in San Diego. Excellent. Yeah. Acting CO this week, which is, I almost couldn't pull you out of there to get uh, you know. here for the interview. I know. A couple more days. Okay. Outstanding. <clears throat> well, uh, that's awesome. And so you ended up as a Naval Flight Officer, correct? I did. And you two guys flew together. Yes. Awesome. Once it was VF-102. All right. Yeah. Good. Well, that's why we needed you both here, because you needed both of you in the aircraft, right? Crew concept. Yeah. Although I'm, I'm pretty sure Cosmo didn't know what SIF was there for, other than hey, to just hey, drive oh the bus. But yeah, alive, right? We'll get into that. That's true. <laughs> that is true. So, Sunshine, why don't you lead it off? What's our first question, as always, for the aircraft series here? All right, fellas. So tell us what the Tomcat was designed for. Ooh. Okay, I'm going to lead this off, but only because I want Cosmo to fill it in, because everything's in a story, and I love a story that's a story. We were sitting in Puerto Rico one time, and our skipper at the time, Waldo uh, Rallstad, I remember this. And he told the story of the Tomcat when the whole squadron was out having dinner. Uh Refreshments. uh, Yeah, it was definitely dinner. Okay. He told the story, and it started something like this, and and I don't remember exactly, but it started around 1956 in the development of the Phoenix missile. And it was actually, the aircraft was built around... The missile. Like so, the A-10 being built around the GAU-8? So the whole development was around the missile capability, and the aircraft went through many iterations as it were developing it until it actually debuted on something like 69. Does that sound about right? Uh, I think it first flew in 70, and first deployment was like 73 that or something like that. sounds accurate. But beyond that, the big picture here is is that it was actually developed because of the thing that it was going to carry, as opposed to the way we do things now, which is develop the aircraft and then right. fit the missiles on it. So it was actually developed around the Phoenix missile, the AM-54. Later on, you're going to ask, you know, what about the shape and whatnot? And mm-hmm. my understanding is, because of that, the tunnel system, part of it was about lift because that missile was so heavy. So it was 1,000 pounds. You carried four of them up under the belly. You could carry another two up on the wings. So just a lot of weight. And so uh, a lot of the the lift came from actually the fuselage of the aircraft. Mm-hmm. Uh, I think it was like 60% or something like that. And that's uh-huh. what with the variable swept uh, geometry. And again, it was all about defending our assets from the long-range bombers. There you go. So, yeah. yeah, and that's really it, right, is the fleet defense. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And so back in, what, 70s, the Cold War was at its heightened frenzy. And so you had the carrier battle group, I think they called it back then. But also the counter to that was the Soviet long-range bombers with their anti-ship missiles. And so the idea was, I think, to engage them before they could launch their missiles. Yeah. And Sif, you had mentioned the AM-54. Also, you can point out, I guess, the AUG-9, right? So that was a big deal. So kind of, they worked together. AUG-9 was actually developed to support the missile. So it was one of those interesting things. I will never forget. (laughs) Do you remember that night? Basically. Barely. Uh, Barely. (laughs) (laughs) It was just one of those things. We had Mother down there. Everything was going crazy. And we, we got in this big, long discussion. And instead of talking about Mother and the fighter spirit, we talked about the airplane and it's just one of those fond memories i have of crazy times yes. so 
Well, I would argue, getting back to our earlier point, this aircraft is a DV. I mean, it's almost everyone's favorite. And we'll get to some notoriety later and maybe why that is. But it is a crowd pleaser, no doubt about it. Now, since it was designed for that, over the years, though, its purpose changed, right? I mean, I won't say its purpose, but other missions, missions. missions. Yeah, were adapted. Evolved. Uh, yeah. Cosmo, what else did it end up doing later? So about the time that I rolled through uh, the RAG in VF-101, they were adding the uh, air-to-ground or air-to-surface now mm-hmm. uh, syllabus. And probably the best uh, improvement of the plane to date was the addition of the lantern pod that we had basically borrowed from the Air Force. The low-altitude navigation and targeting infrared for night pod? Wow. It's a mouthful. What are you saying? <laughs> yeah, I guess And I so. knew that right here without my paper. That's oh, amazing. Wait, <laughs> well done, Jello. <laughs> so they adapted a pod, basically a, a FLIR, right, if we can simplify it? Yeah, I mean, it's. It, I think it was built around the F-15, mm-hmm. but the Navy had figured out that we could use this technology, bolt it on as a standalone sensor on the jet without a whole lot of interface between the mission computer and what else. My memory is, is it was a two-pod system in the F-15, and we only took half of it. That's took the right. FLIR portion. You know, it was all really in the back seat. So Cosmo had everything to do with it, and all I had was a repeater up front. Mm-hmm. So, you know, my mm-hmm. job was to get to a solution, and then they did all the work. Well, what was the tactical significance of the Lantern? I mean, what did it allow you to do? It allowed us to be better than the Charlies. <laughs> wow. Oh, here we go. <laughs> yes. This is a good segue for go. question Which, coming yeah, up exactly, later, by the yeah. way. <laughs> But specifically what? In other words, the aircraft was not designed to carry air-to-surface weapons. It was adapted for it. And it had, by the way, an aside, right, like a super quick process for that. They kind of circumvented the normal and did something in like 10 months to get it expedited through. But regardless, they threw the lantern on there, and then that allowed you to employ, well, find targets, but then also employ, what, laser-guided and other kinds of weapons? Yeah, it basically became the best bomber we had at the time. Which is amazing. Yeah. I mean, you had... That wasn't designed to do that. And remember, this was before GPS weapons. So, Mm -hmm. you know, JDAM wasn't there. uh, So the most precision piece that you had was laser-guided weapons. Plus, you had a dedicated operator, right? You Mm -hmm. had more fuel, more gas than anybody else. So you could stay airborne and loiter for a long period of time. Find targets. You could pass those targets off to other folks. You could drop them on them yourself. Cool. It was pretty much a game changer for a jet that was designed to shoot down bombers long range to now be hauling bombs. Right. And it ended up being arguably very effective at it. Yeah. Did it also do some reconnaissance with the TARPS, right? The Tactical Air Reconnaissance Pod System? Sure did. Our favorite mission. (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) I sense some sarcasm here. Fly there, fly there. Well. Yeah. The TARPS pod was an incredibly heavy camera system. That's why uh, I was put on the Tomcat, not the Charlie again. Yeah. It was very, very heavy um, and big. It was a lot bigger than what would be a normal bomb kind of. I think we called it the turd. Yeah, the turd. (laughs) Not the tarps, the turd. Okay. It it definitely um, added to uh, many Cobra maneuvers off the end of the bow because it was very aft weighted. The trim system was a little bit funky on that airplane. Okay. And really all you did was fly from point to point. It was all programmed prior. Cool. Sunshine, what's next? So what does it do well? Does it do well? I mean, it does everything well. Well, that's yeah, a good answer. I mean, does it? It's crowd pleaser. For sure. Sexiest yeah. jet alive, right? Yeah, I mean, I, I yeah. think that. Goes fast. Mm-hmm. Thing of fast. movies. Yeah. Right? Okay. Very fast. Was it, uh, it was good bomber. I think we established that. Plenty of luggage space, right? <laughs> uh, yeah, yeah. yeah, I never get, really got to bring much luggage, but. Yeah. Well, for what it was originally so, designed to do, was it good at that? Air to air, fleet defense? Yeah, yeah. Okay. So the Tomcat was about long range air to air type uh, capability, and it was absolutely fantastic at it. 
given the time. Mm-hmm. We got to put everything in perspective. You know, the technology in at least the A and the B, uh, the AUG-9 was fairly old. We're talking about 50s and 60s type technology that mm-hmm. you know migrated later on. The D, the Super Tomcat, was extremely yeah. um, effective at what it was doing. Did you ever fly the D? I didn't fly it. No, I did a lot of sims through there, but uh, unfortunately I didn't get a chance to to do that. We're it's, about to get to variants. We'll, but we'll be- talk about that. Before you do, I just wanted to ask about the FAC-A mission. Cosmo, before we rolled Absolutely. tape, you had said that was also a pretty good platform for that mission. And in fact, in the Navy at least, we only do it with two-seaters, so we didn't That's really right. have much choice. That's right. There's yeah. a lot going on in a FAC-A mm-hmm. mission. Period. We haven't had a show on that yet, but I'm hoping to. Yeah. But was the Tomcat well-suited for that role? Absolutely. Okay. Right? Because part of that is uh, having the bodies and the crew coordination you know, to tackle all the tasks mm-hmm. at hand. But then to have the gas, right, to stay airborne, to direct the show. Because you're basically an airborne quarterback. Right. Calling the plays and making it happen. Yeah. So Cosmo was talking about the gas, and you were asking about goods and others. It's hard to, you know, compare aircraft in different ways. You know, go, well, it's got more gas. It's got 20,000 pounds as opposed to, you know, 16,000 pounds. That's not probably appropriate. I think it was the endurance. And that that had to do with the wings, the Mm. way that they uh, swung. So, you know, when you slow down in a Tomcat, I think... Max endurance was somewhere around uh, 220 knots. So you'd be sitting there holding the flaps in with your hand and maybe pulling the breakers. <laughs> the alpha computer circuit yeah. breaker, yeah. right? Yeah. Wow. So, uh, pulling a flight control circuit breaker in flight. <laughs> yeah. Bravo, Jim. Yeah. This was a non-published uh, procedure, I'm guessing. <laughs> it was how we did things. Right. And um, you could stay airborne forever in that thing. I don't know if numbers uh, matter, but um, certainly somewhere around 2,000 pounds per engine per hour. So, you know, you're looking at maybe 2,200 pounds per hour and a Maxi fully loaded. It's better than a Charlie. It's better than, uh, way better than a Super Hornet. And it carried more gas. So you could, we didn't have to hit the tanker nearly as much. You could loiter. And that's just slow speed loiter. Mm. But then, you know, you could get going fast pretty quick if sure. you wanted to, too. What was internal capacity for an F-14? I never knew. It's uh, 16,000 without the tanks and then 20 with. Right, another 4,000. So. Yeah, they were 2,000-pound tanks, but they were almost always mounted. Mm-hmm. So the only time I ever flew a slick jet was at the RAG, I think. I think we never took the tanks off in the squadron. We did because uh, Coochie and I did the, oh, well. the, the mock run. Yeah, yeah. 1.3, by the way, at 50 feet. Nice. Yeah. Well, that was you? I don't think that was 50 feet. I mean, yeah, yeah, yeah. Well, okay. So, uh, yeah, right. 150, 200 feet. 200 feet. <laughs> That's right. It was, feet. Uh, it was okay. the best flyby. I will never remember. Oh. forget it. They went by. They were a quarter mile past the ship. And I mean, they and were. And then you heard it. And then you heard it. And wow. it sounded more like a whip crack than a normal boom. Wow. It was amazing. Mm-hmm. The Hornet and the Rhino the always struggle to uh, yeah. please the Try crowd these days. But the those there. days, yeah. it wasn't that hard. Now, That's Sif, when you cool. talk about burn rates and whatnot, Max Conserve, are you talking about the TF-30 or more of the F-110? No, Which so did you like? Cosmo and I, in our squadron, we flew Bs. Okay. And, and so that was the GE engine. So that's the most memory I have. I have about 80 hours in the A. Let's go into variants. So start at the top. F-14A. So F-14A was the uh, TF-30 Pratt-Whitney engine. Which okay. I... And what's significant about that? They were finicky? Oh, <laughs> yeah. I, I mean, I think... <laughs> Is that they, a polite way to put it? I think the history was that that was an interim engine when they procured the airplane, that it was going to get swapped out. You know, at some later point. Mm-hmm. And, of course, in the budgetary back and forth, they sure. said, well, let's buy the plane and keep the engine in it. And only later did the GE F-110 show up, which is the same engine that the uh, F-16s had, mm-hmm. right? Different maker, completely different performance, reliability, yeah. ease of use right. for us operators. Mm-hmm. I like to tell people that I ended up in a B squadron because I had so many compressor stalls in an A and a rag. <laughs> There were massive differences. Mm-hmm. It was a gated afterburner. So Explain that. 
So you had five detents inside of Afterburner, and each one lit off another flame rack, basically. But they were either on or off. So there was no variable thrust in that. Okay. You've heard the term zone three or zone yeah. five. Mm-hmm. So each zone was a gate inside of it. So when you went to zone three, which is what we were allowed to take off with on deck, mm-hmm. you'd push it up and you'd feel it boom, boom, boom. And that was zone three and that's where you held the throttle. You had two more past that. Wow. And it was either on or off. The big problem was is coming in or out of afterburner, if you had any AOA on the jet, it would compress or stall. Sunshine, with your background, is that because of disrupted airflow down the intakes, or what's going on there, it's do you think, or just design? Yeah, poor design of the yeah. intake, I would say, and the, okay. the compressor stages, if you will. All right. And I know that I think almost 30% of the class alphas were attributed to high alpha or high altitude compressor stalls. It was a very, yeah, so it was, we... It was we, finicky because it didn't like any transients. Like, the yeah. best stall margin was either at idle or mill. So I have 80 <laughs> hours in that airplane almost 20 years ago. And I still remember the boldface, which slang term was ease, slow, cook it, shut her down. So, <laughs> slow, cook it, shut her, nice. Yeah. In other words, it was such a So you would ease threat. your G, mm-hmm. yeah, slow down, and then the TIT would go crazy, and then you'd shut it off and then okay. restart it. And it was common. The scary the part was that one would induce the other. Yeah. And so you could be on the tanker, sawing the throttles, right? And you'd <laughs> get a compressor stall. And then the jet would blank the other engine, and you get a double compressor stall. Yeah. And then well, you'd have to you figure have to out one what, at a time. So what was induced by the other, yeah. shut it down, well, for heaven's sake. all while you're trying to get gas. <laughs> I still dream about the sound. I mean, it, it, yeah. it's been 20 years. There you go. There's our sound bit for there the opening. <laughs> <laughs> the opening spiel. Wow. Well, you know what? Certain nice. things, if they make a schema or whatever it's called, they'll stick with you for yeah. a long time. So. so it was different. But okay. the F-110... Well, hold on. So that came in the B, right? Mm -hmm. Now, for the F-14A, that was your regular AUG-9, as we call the AWG. I'm sure that stood for something, but that was your baseline radar. And then, what, you had one decent display front and back as far as otherwise it was pretty analog? It was was totally decoupled. I mean, it was a... Completely decoupled. Really? Yeah. And you had to, in the back, didn't you, Cosmo, have to, like, virtually get a screwdriver and, like, tune the radar? I flew with hand tools. Did you really? Yeah. Wow. No fault in the cockpit I, there. I mean, we go back a conversation a little bit. When I showed up at the RAG from the flight school, you know, T-39, whatever, Saberliner, it was like a step back in time. Hmm. And I thought, hey, I'm joining the fleet. It's I'm true. getting to fly Tomcats. This yep. is going to be like cutting-edge technology. Yeah. And uh, it wasn't, right? It was a Commodore 64 with wings on it. The mission computer had magnetic tape, Sheesh. right? And so you wow. had to, you know, press play on tape to get like your Commodore, oh my God, if I have to, to play in a certain software load yeah. right, to do something. So if you can imagine playing uh, arcade games as a kid, right? You're watching mm-hmm. or looking at like, Miss Pac-Man or something, right? <laughs> uh-huh. But you go to the pizza parlor and it's been on for years, right? It burns into the display, sure. right? Uh-huh. Somebody designed you know, my main upper display, my DDI, in the reverse polarity. So it was all image, all green. Uh-huh. And you took image away if there was a target, right? But this thing had been <laughs> been turned on for like thirty and it years, like an right? Uh-huh. Most of the screens were burnt in in solid green, and yeah. so it was this labor of love that you take off and you point the radar at the horizon, at the dirt, and you go, "Can I even see anything?" And a lot of times it was just burnt in, right? And wow. so this little screwdriver he carried, there was three screws underneath the display, two of which did something on the display. One it was like two hundred forty volts of high voltage electricity 
which, you know, you didn't want to stick the screwdriver Very consequential. In there. <laughs> yeah, right? <laughs> Whoops. But so you could tweak the display, and of course uh-huh. the ATs were not super happy that you were doing that. Right. But they couldn't do that on deck. You'd come back and say, hey, the mm. display's washed out, and they would go, checks 4.0 on deck, yeah. you know, can't duplicate, right? Yeah. And you're just pulling your hair out. And all the while, while you're frustrated at this display, the pilot can't see anything. Yeah. There's no repeater for that up front. Mm. Wow. Yeah, yeah, in the front, we had a, a DDI, basically, if you want to call it that. VDI is what we called it, and it was just an attitude reference with the um, moving poop bricks, as we like to call them. <laughs> they had yeah. these little, on the but ground you, side... you they, could show the lantern video. But you it. could... So you had, okay. uh, on yeah. your right-hand side, and I know that you, you talk about those, you had... Uh, a switch that you could basically flip that to video. So it would either show the television camera system, TCS, mm-hmm. as we called it, uh, which was up on the nose, or the lantern video based on what they had selected in the back. And then below that, well, I can't remember what the name of the display was, but basically we could see um, whatever type of radar they were in on the, as long as they were using pulse Doppler. So even as a pilot, not using the radar at all, you got very familiar with different types of waveforms and whatnot because based on what was going on, and what they were doing in the back was what you could see. So as long as they were in track wall scan or, you know, they had a, a what we call a PDSTT, a pulse Doppler single target track, mm-hmm. you could see it. If they were in pulse, that was on their little oscilloscope back there and you couldn't see anything. <laughs> and so you would just get calls from the back and be like 30 right, you know, 20 yeah. miles. No 30. wonder they called you a stick monkey. At it, that point, he's just telling yeah. you where to go, right? right? So <laughs> That's in, why, yeah, from though. an ACM mode comparison over on the throttle, you know, and you flew the Hornet, you're very familiar with all the different mm-hmm. modes you had. Well, in Tomcat, you had two different modes you could get to, but really you could only had one. So you had a boresight. I could click one and it would give me a boresight, which is what we used in ACM. Theoretically, you could get to what would be a PAL mode, if you remember, and I don't remember what that stands for, but a scanned Mm -hmm. square. Mm -hmm. But you had to reach up under the canopy rail and (laughs) grab this little switch that was under there that also, by the way, would move your TD box if you were dropping a bomb. You could move it up and down, but you couldn't move it left to right. So you dropped it (laughs) and you're like, okay, that's good enough. And then you could move it up and down with this thing, right? (laughs) Everything else was done from behind. So uh, if you needed something and you couldn't get to it, you'd call for it. So you guys got good at crew coordination. Absolutely. Yeah, what I was going to say is the other ACM mode, what is it, vertical scan lock-on VSL, right? That switch is in you know, my office in the backseat. Hmm. And so the workaround for that was, uh, and I saw this in the rag, was a BIC pin cap that they jam over the uh, toggle switch so it's stuck up higher. So you could find it without. Hmm. So in an ACM, you know, right, I, need to, I need to get that G. mode. Right. You know, there's so many switches that this thing's stuck up like that tall. You could, <laughs> and they're you all could just sweep like... it with your hand and it would activate. When we talk about switches, it's just like your standard little silver switch, you know, that uh-huh. you're... And, and it's... Like the tip of a pinky. Yeah, yeah. yeah. I mean, I mean, so yeah. if you've got a hundred of those things back there and you're looking, you know, you're under a lot of G and you're looking up over the top and right. you call for VS, VSL, I think it was called. Yeah, you can do high or low or something. And, and, and there was different ones. He had to be able to flick it from the back. You could imagine, you know, how hard it can be to find that stuff when you're used to everything with your hands and, you know, on the hands and yeah, We've come a long way. Yeah, I guess. Yeah. It's yeah. amazing these days. Okay. Well, so, you had to really be operators. Yeah, so I was going to say, so if you have all these workarounds that became procedures, but in 91, the D or the Super Tomcat came out with the glass cockpit. The upgraded avionics to include the APG-71. Correct. And I don't know enough about it, but I can tell you that they definitely had different modes. It was much more hands-on throttle and stick than what I'm talking about. So we're talking about A's and B's. Right. The D had much more capability. I know they had a a secondary display called a TSD, a tactical situational display, display, Mm -hmm. which was a non-fused product. So it kind of overlaid with a bunch of information on it. 
And then they had a lot of Hotaz available to them, as well as uh, quite an incredible radar. So I know you were going to yeah. get to the variants, but... Well, we're on the variants. So yeah. the A and the B are, what, pretty similar except for the engine? Is that fair? Or? Absolutely. Okay. Yeah. Same plane, different engine. Same okay. plane, different engine. And then the D, to your point, Sunshine had a new radar, APG-71, I mm-hmm. believe it was, and a new ejection seat, the Nacy's. Yep. Probably a better HUD. I don't know how your HUD was in the A and B. I heard it was pretty basic. So... Uh, it's awesome to talk about nowadays. You would actually, as you look at the horizon, <laughs> you would turn the knob to get to the horizon. So it would have a line out there, <laughs> and you'd turn the knob, and it would go to... So you'd either so set you your, tell the HUD instead of the HUD telling you. Correct. So some people nice. set it at the horizon, mm-hmm. and some people set it a little below the horizon for different reasons. When you move the airplane, it moved anyways. Okay. And then uh, hmm. in your air-to-air modes, for mm-hmm. which <laughs> it's worth, you had uh, indicator every 30 degrees in pitch. Wow. That's it. Goodness. Right? And it was all displayed actually on the window. We didn't have a HUD sitting up. Mm. It was just projected right onto the window. So there was not a whole lot there. On the windscreen? Yeah. Okay. On the actual windscreen. Gotcha. Okay. So, Sif, the first time you flew an F-14 in the RAG, you flew it. They're all two-seaters, but there were no two-seat trainers. There was absolutely zero trainers. I talk to guys about this nowadays, and they always kind of joke about it. Like, what do you mean there was no stick in the back? You did a flip-flop hop. So the first time, mine was with uh, Knutson. I can't remember his uh, first name, but his last name was Knutson. We went out, and I sat in the back. Somebody started it for me, so we had somebody out there fluff the airplane. And, uh, yeah, cause <laughs> I could, disturbing. I didn't know what to do in the Big back. Because uh-huh. we had to run different stuff to get it started. So right. I didn't know what I was doing in the back. So that you fluff the airplane, then you sit in the back, and basically you watch what they do. Right. And then they get in the back, and yeah. you get in the front. And you do the exact same flight. Right. It included, and I like to talk about performance-wise because everything else, it included, you started at 500 feet, 500 feet, 550 knots, lift the cans. This was an NA. Put it up 70 degrees, and then you rolled out when you hit at 250 knots, and that was at about 33 to 35,000 feet. Wow. 70 seconds. You timed it. Nice time to climb. You still remember all that. That's cool. Yeah. But to be fair, you did probably a lot of mock-up cockpit trainers before that, a lot of academics. And we talked about this on the A7 with mm -hmm. Demon. Yeah. So the Sims were um, much more realistic, I want to say, than many of the Sims. The Sims themselves, I think, correct me if I'm wrong, but they could use them to investigate some of the stuff going on in the airplane. I know when we, we had an airplane that got lost, they did investigations inside of the Sims. So it was, it was, it. it was good enough to be able to check out flying characteristics inside of the Sims, as opposed to nowadays, which a lot of Sims don't necessarily fly exactly Mm -hmm. like the airplanes. Yeah. Yeah. That's fair. The Sims were hokey though. The, uh, (laughs) they were probably old too, right? When a pilot had a Sim, like a Natops check or whatever, Uh the full dome, you know, with the visuals and everything had no backseat in it. So I would sit at the console (laughs) with the, the contracted instructor doing the, you know, the Natops flight with my PCL, not looking at the, uh, it's going to be a left engine fire, you know, and, <laughs> well, and that's and, how they did it. And okay. when you wow. did tactical sims in those particular, I think it was the two Fox 139s, they were in different rooms. They were literally in a different room, like 40, 50, 60 feet away, huh. whatever, yeah. over in the different room. And, and so, I mean, it doesn't really matter because, I mean, honestly, you're, you're in the same thing, but they would be in a different, completely different room. But that's, see, that's where crew coordination started, right? Because you look over and say, mm, compressor stall. <laughs> <laughs> You know it's coming, huh? Yeah. Now, usually in the variance section of the discussion, we also talk about exports. Do we want to talk about exports with the F-14 Tomcat? No. <laughs> no? You know so what I, I don't know I went to Iran. Iran. Yeah, Iran. Iran, right? Are they still yeah. flying? Anybody know? They yeah. are. 
correct me if I'm wrong, isn't that why they basically destroyed all the F-14s after they retired them? Because they didn't want the parts ending up over there? I do not know. I correct. thought I heard that. That was the that main strategy. Be... Yep. Yeah. Okay. Yeah, back at the time, I mean, you got Iran right next to Russia, our big adversary, right? And we liked the Shaw at the time. So we had some pretty good politics going on with the Shaw, and he sure did like those F-14s. So. Yeah. But then, yeah, the way that we could kind of uh, snip the... The cords, if you will, is by part availability. So right. that was our follow-on okay. strategy. Yeah. And I know there's still a handful out there being preserved for museums or something. But mm-hmm. anyway. Mm-hmm. All right. And this thing went away in, what, 2006 <laughs> or so? Six, yeah. like that. Okay. Sunshine, you want to take the next one? Sure. So tell us why the F-14 looks like it does. Cosmo. Well, like what Sif said earlier, it's kind of built around the radar, right? Yeah. It's, it's a yeah. huge contraption in there, the dish and the array and everything. You know, like the missile system required all of this liquid cooling. Right, so there's a huge tax on the airframe for weight. The suspension equipment for the Phoenix missile was like each rail was like a thousand pounds. Plus, all of the cooling was liquid, so you're hauling around all this. On the A and B, in the D they got rid of it, but in the, okay. in the original A and B yeah. it was called coolant all. It's cool like radi- radiator fluids green. <laughs> okay, crazy. Right? What about the swing wings? That's pretty cool. The wing, like Sif alluded to earlier, wings out. You are really efficient right. platform. You want to go fast, and the wings would program on you. Boy, you reduce drag and the delta configuration, you know. Mm. I forget what the wing sweep rate was, but... 20 degrees was all the way out. 68 degrees was all the way right. back. You could put them into oversweep only on deck, to park which would on, go to 70-something. Mm, right. But 68 was all the way back. So if you're dogfighting, Sif, you and I are BFMing, is that something you're manually doing as you fight me in my home? No, or? It, so no, but you could. We could tell stories. It wasn't me. <laughs> Absolutely. The infamous spider it, detent, it, it right? It wasn't oh, me, right? So it wasn't me, and I won't say names. But there was a handle that actually controlled the wings specifically. If you can imagine that handle inside of the the automatic system could be placed into something that would keep move it. Okay. They called that the spider detent. In order to get the wings in when you first brought them out, you'd put it into auto because it should be in 20 and hit the master reset and it would run the spider detent to 20. You pull the wings out and try to drop them into the detent. You could feel it. Mm-hmm. So you guys have probably seen videos of Tomcats sitting on the cat and the wings are kind of waggling. <laughs> mm-hmm. That's somebody trying to find that detent to get it in. So you get it in. Once you get it in, you test them real quick. You move them back and then move them forward and leave them in auto. And then we would leave them in auto with the exception of when we came into the break, we'd sweep them all the way back. And then uh, at 300. Cool. And it bled really <laughs> yeah, fast. Yeah, yeah. And then uh, you could um, pop them to auto at 300 knots is where we were supposed to do it. And believe it or not, back at 68, your stall margin was like 220, 230, somewhere around there. Especially if you had G on the jet, you could really stall the airplane fast. Hmm. So it was very, very fast with them back. The reason they did that was because they had to be able to get the airplane slow enough to land it. Because it was heavy. It was 10,000 pounds heavier than a Super Hornet, 20,000 pounds heavier than a Charlie. If you think about, you know, all that energy being dissipated on the deck, it was Hmm. a lot. And then the airplane was really fast. So I know personally I'd seen Mach 2 which is a little bit above Natops. So. <laughs> Don't worry, you're out now. So yeah, you're okay. so it's all good. But it wasn't with dupes, so we're good. All right. You know, 600 indicated at 43,000 feet. The thing was really quick. And that was just level acceleration, just testing it out. My record was uh, 50,000 feet, 1,000 knots ground speed. Wow. Yeah. Wow. I don't want to tell you was how some high of that tailwind? went to. That was dumb. I know it's cheating, but. I wish we would have remembered what the yeah. indicated was because Still, we wanted impressive. to see 1,000 yeah. in the HUD or on the speedometer. Okay. It was so fast, though, <laughs> and, uh, you know, you look down at 1,000 knots ground speed. We were rapidly departing the CVOA where we were supposed to be yeah. hanging out, you know, uh-huh. and Red Crown's like, where are right. you guys going? I'm like, holy <laughs> shit. We're going to see our friends Coming in the You're talking about, yeah. you know, stories and whatnot about how much 
power the aircraft had. And uh, I, did you fly F-16s? I did briefly. Okay, mm-hmm. so an F-16 and a Tomcat, I always thought of them as half and half. Like an yeah. F-16 is half the weight and half the in, and has one engine and half the fuel um, and half the fuel. Um, very comparable. So uh, you would climb out in military power at about 30 degrees nose high at 250 knots, no problem. And that's with a section, so you're given a little margin there. You know, if you lit the cans on a B, you could go straight up with no problems. That's pretty cool. And I've it, seen that done. It was cool to be um, have excess power on yeah. the catapult, yeah. right? So when we took off the ship, you know, in a B, we weren't supposed to go to max power. We were restricted. Really? We could right. not you'd, do... You'd, theoretically, you'd overspeed the, the shuttle. Wow. Right? So it was a mill <laughs> catapult shot every uh-huh. time. I mean, there's a couple times when it was a kind of a soft cat. And pilot would go, dude, this is weird, you know, and you plug in the blowers and we'd accelerate with that. Yeah, and they, they used to have a demo a long time ago. I know Dilly Brackett way back in the day was a demo pilot. And uh, they talked about the takeoff on it was one of the coolest air show things that they did. They did a double dirty Immelman on takeoff. Right off the cat? No, no. At the airfield. Oh, at the field. Yeah, at, the, at the field. Okay. They would do a double dirty Immelman. Like leave all the, the gear way, down? All the way up to, yeah, leave wow. the gear down. Two Immelmans up to about 12,000 feet. And they were really slow. When they came over the top there, and I think that's why they stopped doing it. But it was only in the B. It was a rocket ship. Wow. That See, sounds impressive. Talk well, about overspeeding the carrier gear. How about uh, actually the shuttle? Shuttle. Flaps. How, how about, yeah, landing? So could you two block the gear by chance? Oh, yeah. We had a system called Atlas, and then we had uh, the original RATS, the reduced uh, thrust system. Afterburner reduced, thrust whatever, system. Afterburner yeah. thrust system. If you accidentally went into afterburner, which you shouldn't because it was not a detent stop. It, you had to go outwards and up. Um, it wouldn't give it to you. Because um, you're weight on wheels it would or just, something. It would tear the gear right off the... It had a lot of juice. It had a lot of oomph. Yeah, yeah. Well, those are good engines. A lot of We're talking about performance. Let's just finish that discussion. Obviously, we talked about the altitude max. Uh, what about G? What will it pull for Gs? Well, I think it was designed around seven and a half, six and a half. What we were limited is to. That, I can't remember. Yeah, six it was, and a half. It was designed for seven and a half. We were limited to six and a half for longevity kind of thing. Yeah, but there was no G limiter. Oh, so, so it was all seat of the pants. So it was all seat of the pants. You had a little thing, and right. trust me, there was many times you went down there and tapped that little guy. <laughs> the gauge. <laughs> yeah, get it down below that so yeah. you didn't get in trouble. Yeah, especially okay. when you're a new. It guy. wasn't like a Charlie or a Super that would tattletale on you with a, yeah. a code. Yeah. yeah, but that's where my story comes in. Is you, you talk about wings. I know a guy that threw the wings to 20, came into the merge. This was in uh, the grad 1v1 and Top Gun and okay. uh, entered into a, a 1v1 with a F-16 and then uh, pulled 10 Gs, 10 and a half. Mm. So the story is from the Rio. What's my favorite story? Uh, I won't tell who it is. He used to say, he said, yeah, we came to the merge. The wings were out. And he's like, oh, what's going on? And he says, and when I woke up, we were at a six o'clock. <laughs> <laughs> Whatever it takes. Right. <laughs> Holy smokes. Yeah, well, nice. Hey, with the right. wing sweep, thinking of one more thing with performance, the glove veins, did you guys fly with those? Or were they always the same? Is that those little you? things that came out in the those front? Those little triangle things? Because when we built models yeah. as kids, we had a model that had yeah. those. They were yeah. always disabled for us. For us. For so the story goes is that they were theoretically helpful with the transonic region, Yeah. with controllability in the transonic region. And honestly, it wasn't really a big deal. It was nothing like a Hornet or a Super Hornet where it really bumps and has a hard time. It, you just punch right through it. But you wouldn't want to live there, right? That 1.1 to 1.3 Mach area was kind of a no man's zone. You want to either be faster or slower. Hmm. Those things supposedly help with that. And I think they had a lot of trouble, much like in the Super Hornet where they had those little extra bits of flaps that they got mm-hmm. rid of or that they tucked up and just stopped dealing with it. Very similar thing. They just tucked them back and disabled it. And I think they were probably pulled on most of them. Gotcha. So they were there, but they just didn't work, or they took them out? I, I think they probably pulled them, because okay. I mean, it's just extra weight. Yeah. And you had other weird things on the airplane, like airbags. 
that supported the wing sweep system. Really? That oh yeah. I mean mechanically the airplane is to me it's amazing because of all the stuff that they did without digital help and without you know. I mean it was just all mechanically yeah. done and you know via PSIs and this yeah. and that and the airbags helped the wings tuck and. That was always a big problem. Was there ever a concern that the wings wouldn't come out for landing? Was that... Oh, yeah. Yeah. Did, was there ever, really? oh, yeah. Was there ever someone who landed with the wings back? Oh, yeah. I saw one in Oceana, 68. What you was know, the approach speed for something like about that? About 230. Oh. oh, so you're not doing that at the ship. No, and 230 is like V-Ref. It is literally right close to your stall speed. Sure. And your tires are going to be able to handle that? Barely. Wow. Uh, so he landed. I will never forget it was a VF2 jet. Oceana is only 8,000 feet long. And we were outside and we saw it go by and I, I, it was a buddy of mine. And I saw it go by and we're like, holy God. Wings back on? but wheels down. So they basically, <laughs> you can't hit the brakes because uh, we didn't have anti-skid like a normal airplane. You, you engaged it and you hoped it worked. Um, <laughs> Very so you, analog, you wouldn't yeah. want to touch your brakes too much because mm-hmm. you would heat them up especially. And with the wings back like that, you didn't get spoilers. So nothing to slow it down. And if you pulled the stick back, you would rotate. So mm. it's kind of a no man wow. zone, right? So he landed, and I think he took the long gear at 160 knots, which is almost the limit for it. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Oh, I'm sure it was the limit. Yeah, but it was better than going across Oceana Boulevard. Uh, yeah, <laughs> I would say so. All right, so if you have that at the ship, you're basically going somewhere else, oh, you're or you're screwed. pulling alongside yeah. and bailing out. It would be bad. All right, Sunshine, you want to talk about the armament? So, fellas, Cosmo, tell us about the armament. We've talked about one of them already. Yeah, we did. Yeah, the mighty phonics. <laughs> <Feel them. laughs> yeah. <laughs> But we could carry the normal uh, complement of AIM-9, AIM-7, mm-hmm. AIM-54, and then... Uh, same gun as the Hornet, right? Same gun, M-61. but more, more bullets. Okay. What was I the, have something over Well, the, the magazine was like 600 rounds or something. Oh, God, I can't remember. <laughs> yeah. Something like that. A lot. It was a lot. It was a lot. Was a lot. Right. And it was useful. Almost six seconds. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, there you go. Mm. Okay. And then for our time, it was all uh, either general purpose, cluster bombs, or laser-guided bombs. Okay. We ever got into JDAM, but it came later. Right. Yeah. And where would you carry the GP bombs on the bird? So they would all fit in the tunnel. We had room for four. Yeah, underneath. so the tunnel's the fuselage between the two low-slung intakes, the right? The cells, yeah. Right. Okay. Yep. Now, that thing was designed initially for the high-altitude, if you will, uh, lifting body kind of thing, the fuselage. And now you're going to stick a bunch of bombs in the slipstream. So how did that affect the characteristics when it became the bomb cat? To be honest, it didn't care. Really? Yeah, I don't Just think so. Just brute force, it didn't matter, huh? No, I mean, that Mach 2 run I did was it with full bomb rails on it and a lantern pot on it. So, yeah. <laughs> And everything stayed on. It did not care. Yeah. I mean, I, honestly, there was so much engine on that thing, it didn't care. Wow. Okay. The Hornet does not have that problem. No, it does yeah. not. <laughs> yeah, that's pretty cool. Was there ever any talk about AMRAM? Or by that time, was it I think it was, it was talked about in the D yeah, at some point. Yeah, I think point. they talked about it. The APG-71 could support it. The Thog 9 could not. Right. But I think it was just cost prohibitive based okay. on the airplane. Okay. And the aircraft itself... At, some point became cost prohibitive for itself. I mean, that's essentially why they ended up speeding up the sunset, right? Oh that's yeah. When, subject, when we but... left our second cruise, the you know the maintainers. That was my this. first cruise. His second cruise. Yeah. Okay. They were at like fifty-five maintenance man hours per flight mm. hour. Wow. And we were flying. What did we flew six six thousand hours on that cruise. Sixty seventy hours a month. I flew a hundred and hundred over a hundred hours in that December. What would you attribute that to? I mean, 70s technology, right? The 60s, actually. Just that it wasn't designed to be easily maintained, or were the parts becoming expensive, or... Well, like, diff- you, you know, contrast uh, Super Hornet, which is composites and, and stuff like that. I mean, our airframe shop, they would bend metal to make parts. Yeah. They'd Handmade. Bend, they'd bend right. That's some piece of aluminum, but they'd put holes in it. Think about when you... Put it uh, on the jet, you When know? you have um, open up a, a panel on a, on a Hornet, right? You've got three little quick fittings maybe right, four right. right which is genius yeah, yeah. yeah totally now. genius in a tomcat 
there would be 40 maybe of these, 40 you know, would you be lucky. A speed, a that'd be a small wrench. panel it'd be like 100 <laughs> with a speed yeah. wrench back there and so they you'd land when we were doing that cruise we you would land guys are up on top of the airplane and they're speed wrench going as fast as they can <laughs> and uh pulling panels and you know i mean i was just joke it's like you could just imagine the tape reels down there just rolling you know yeah, the... the computers it was pretty slow but it was a tough jet yeah. i mean my nugget cruise or nugget workups on john f kennedy i'm sitting on uh right behind cat three and i'm pretty much have no idea what's going on right i'm flying with a lieutenant commander right shaggy all wine and I look over to the left of me, and one of the things we did for crew coordination is he made made sure the JBD was up behind you before he went into tension, right? Right. So I'm looking over, and the Tomcat on Cat 3 is in tension, right? Throttles are coming up, and the JBD's down. And the guy behind him is a dude in our squadron parked almost 90 degrees behind him, right? And he's sliding backwards, oh. and he basically impacts the Charlie behind him. Yeah. And, oh, my gosh, you know, we shut, we shut down everything. That's a Kennedy. That's Kennedy. <laughs> and... Uh, the Charlie was like broke bad, like <laughs> bent, right? It probably didn't even fade. It's like and, a modern and, car that no, gets hit by a muscle car. No kidding. The, the, the airframers are out. They had a ding on one of the AIM-7 Lows or something. And it, <laughs> it like flew the next day. I couldn't yeah. believe it. Maybe they put a little bit of that green speed tape on it. <laughs> but, you know, guys wear patches products, on their jackets, yeah. you know, yeah. Grumman Ironworks. That, that's yeah. kind of yeah. where that came from. Yeah. It was designed to fly fast and at treetop level, carrying 24 nuclear weapons. Today, it bristles with smart bombs and guided missiles. The B-1 bomber, called the bone by those who fly and maintain it, is the most heavily armed bomber ever built. Sleek and powerful, the bone remains a mainstay of American air power 50 years after its first flight. Hey everyone, this is Ken Katz, Call Sign Primetime. And my book, The Supersonic Bone, A Development and Operational History of the B-1 Bomber, tells the true story of this magnificent airplane. In this book, you'll read stories told to me by those who were there and see lots of great photos of the bone. Anyone with an interest in modern military aircraft will enjoy reading The Supersonic Bone. Available through the usual online retailers and aviation booksellers. Pick up your copy today. Getting back to the weapons, though, so you guys didn't dabble in any of the funny stuff, right? Slammy R, mines, harpoon, none of that crap. I mean, you were shooting missiles and dropping bombs, basically. Yeah, it was like GP, Rockeye, laser-guided weapons, okay. right? But the yeah, lander pod and laser-guided weapons was yeah. the pairing that yeah. did everything. And you guys could carry the GPU-24, right? Yeah. Paveway 3? So we yeah. did Paveway 3. That, yeah. was, that was our funny That was weapon. a good mission for you guys. I yeah, thought. it was very yeah. good because we could drop it from a ridiculous yeah. height. All right, so strengths and weaknesses. We've talked about a lot of them already. And so any big one or two from either category that you guys would feel like we haven't maybe hit sufficiently? So, for example, I'll add one if I may. I would say when I fought it a few times that I did in the visual arena, unlike fighting an F-5, it was not that difficult to keep sight. So I would say that was a weakness of the F-14. I mean, you could see the tennis court. (laughs) Yeah, yeah, yeah. And the flying tennis court. But uh, anyway, from your point of view as operators, that's right, affectionately termed. Big picture strengths and weaknesses? I think definitely having two guys in the mix was a huge strength for all of the missions that we did. I'll say, we talked about earlier, but the fuel capacity in carrier aviation, you know, fuel is is big, right? Always coming back to the boat time between tanker hits, stuff like that. I would say uh, visibility. And so this might sound a little bit weird. As a... As a good. Really? Not necessarily out the front. You had the jail bars. Right. Right? So Mm -hmm. it was kind of limited to the front. 
and I only mean to the sides of the front. Right. Unlike a Hornet, you could see behind you and to the side of you. You could see below you to the left or to the right. You didn't have a Lex in front of you. Right. So as a pilot, you were sitting out in front and you had a big bubble canopy and you were sitting out in front of the whole thing. And you could see all the way to the what we call the boat tail between the tail. You could see everything that hmm. was part of the jet. In a Hornet or a Super Hornet, you can't do that. Um, you can barely see the the actual tail on a Super yeah. Hornet or a Hornet. Unless you got a tail gunner yeah. to uh, loosen his leg. And the other thing is, is the cockpit <laughs> was gunner. massive, right? So yeah. it was yeah. very wide. That allowed you to get a little bit extra turning space, and not to mention you could store anything that you needed on the right or the left side as opposed to some of these other jets. So yeah. that was nice. We already talked about the immense ability to put energy on. Yeah. Fantastic good. You know, from an others, a lot of people will talk about the G. I didn't think the G was a big deal because corner speed was so low. But the handling characteristics when you got slow was um, an acquired thing. So there were some folks that were very, very good, and they were all very senior. We had a, a skipper, Pokemolador, that was absolutely fantastic at flying a slow jet. Hmm. But they were few and far between. Unlike a Hornet, where it doesn't take much to do it. With a Hornet, you get it slow. As long as you can keep your AOA where you need it, you can point it wherever you need to go. And right. You know, in the old days, with the older prom, you could do some pretty neat stuff. Oh, yeah. A Tomcat took finesse, and it took aviator knowledge and capability, mm. unlike any other airplane. Our squadron was a big flap uh, squadron. So we were allowed to drop the flaps, but we're, now we're talking about actually manually manipulating these things as opposed to Hornet, which just does it all for does you. Does it for you, right? right. So now you yeah. got to get below 220 knots. You got to let the G below two Gs because you'll lock them out, you know, and really you want to be somewhere closer to zero. You're moving this big flap handle in the middle of a fight now. Wow. Moving this big flap mm -hmm. handle, they pulled some circuit breakers to keep the other ones going from <laughs> yeah, you. Yeah, but you locked your wings out at twenty degrees. You risked like things. breaking the torque tubes right. and yeah. So all of that was much more. It required aviator skill. Mm -hmm. You know, it's is it another? Absolutely, mm -hmm. comparatively to how we do things. But it was also part of what made the airplane so much fun to fly. Yeah. Wow. So, how about the handling qualities when you're coming back to the boat? So on approach. It's worth mentioning that there were, I flew two different versions. There was the AFCS jets and the DFCS jets. So analog versus digital. Flight control systems. Right, flight mm -hmm. control systems. Yep. I won't explain how they talk to each other, but let's just say that when you came around the corner to line up to go to the boat, you used to line up at the left ladder line and the airplane would slide to the right about 30 feet. Hmm. So you roll out and the airplane just kind of slid over and slammed over. Inertia or something? No, it was just the way it didn't lock down. Remember, there's no ailerons right. in the airplane, mm -hmm. so it's just spoilers and, mm -hmm. and stabilators, and it had a very big Dutch roll tendency. So anytime you made a lineup correction, and we're talking about you only had like three or four feet off of each wingtip for the ladder line, so center line is very important. Oh, yeah. Right? So every time that you do that, it would just kind of slime over, and then you have to use rudders a little bit. Once they went to DFCS, all that went away. Now we had a lot of guys lined up left because they'd roll out and it, <laughs> it, and it, just, it just stayed habit. there. <laughs> Old habit. So yeah. Yeah. It was a lot better from that standpoint. But it was also a big airplane, so it floated a little bit like a Super Hornet does when it hits the uh, first part of the uh, burble. It didn't sink like a Hornet does coming across a burble. But with a B, you were so far back on the power already that the DFCS was almost a necessity. Mm. So you had to have something to be able to kill that lift at the last bit. You mean DLC? Um, yeah, so tell us about direct lift control. It's brilliant, yeah, right? It was amazing. And then we forgot about it in the Charlie yeah. Foxtrot. Well, in the and Charlie, we just the rocked the wings left right? and right. Oh, yeah. That's right. Yeah, yeah. 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 Charlie, Charlie the control services. Because um, it was just like, uh, wait for the burble and milk. Yeah, yeah exactly. <laughs> so yep. Tomcat wasn't like that. It wouldn't come down. So you were already too far back in the power, and if you pulled it anymore, you're going to get cut. So Yeah, cut being an LSO expression. Yeah. Okay, so the DLC, direct lift control, yep. would essentially 
destroy lift yep. allow you to kind of almost fall out of the sky those last yeah so you got a little power and put the dlc down yeah. and, and, and was, all was, the spoilers would come up and yeah, yeah. it was magic and was the dlc was it variable or was it binary like it's either on or off you know what I'm saying? it was variable wasn't it? it was variable but there's a story so okay. do you guys know how the tomcat got its name the turkey no yes so it's from the original dlc mm. so when they originally put dlc on the airplane it was an all or nothing and it included all four spoilers and so what would happen is when you do that, you'd click it on and it would kill all your lift and you click it off real fast, right? So the wings actually went like this. Now you guys have an eye. Think about the wings going up and down and that big airplane coming at you as an LSO and what does it look like? Oh, it's Herky. And that's where it's got its name. <laughs> nice. Never heard of that. What a story, So man. don't forget, cool. this is an audio-only show. So you had your arms out and you were flapping, yeah, like, flapping a, the like a bird. That's why I tried to explain okay. it. Yeah. yeah, very good. <laughs> awesome. All right, guys. Well, that's the strengths and the weaknesses. I think we're down to notoriety. Now, Sunshine, I can't think of anywhere the listener would have heard or seen of what, the F-14. Wasn't I mean, there something about the Gulf of Sidra? Or, I don't, oh, or maybe there's, there's a movie a couple or something? Downs, I, I don't, I don't know. know. Some kind of Tom. Well, there was that one movie. Yeah, like Tim Cruise or something. What was that, what was that guy? <laughs> Not, I thought it was Kirk Douglas. <laughs> oh, Ooh, snap. Good. So well played, that? sir. The final countdown. There yeah, we go. Cosmo, Cosmo. saved the day. He saved you. So, my story on the final countdown is I was on Nimitz my last three deployments, my stateroom when I was the CEO of uh, the Black Knights was Kirk Douglas's. Really? Yeah. Nice. Yeah. Oh, in the movie, awesome. right? Did he so, leave anything in there for you? It's the same <laughs> Naga Hyde folded bed. Okay. It's the same. Uh, he left the mattress later. along with all the yeah. people that own that air. That <laughs> That's F- cool, right? That was like the best day room cool. on the boat. The F-14 yeah, was definitely, I would say, featured in the final countdown. But I think everyone knows the Top Gun was oh, clearly one. where it made its chops. <laughs> but to your point, Sunshine, in 1981, mm-hmm. it shot down a couple SU-22s from Libya. And then again in 1989, a couple of MiG-23s. Yeah, the floggers. Yep, yep, absolutely. But it's never gotten a kill, right, with a Phoenix, dare I say? No. Nope. All that money, all that yep. time. All right, at least not from an American I sense a airplane. jab there. Jim. No, I'm asking. I mean, I'm representing the, the listener here. They no, want I... to know. <laughs> I think people tried. I think there okay. were some failures along yeah. the way. <laughs> I think Bluto had a couple yeah, of attempts. Bluto kind of. Not so much. Thanks, Bluto. All right, well, it wasn't all his fault. <laughs> All right, so let's see. That's that. And then sea stories. I think we've had some sea stories. Do we want to move on to listener questions, Sunshine? Do you, you have a couple there, don't yeah, you? Yeah, sure thing. All right, so the first one is from Sebastian in Sweden. He asked, my question is about the rivalry between the Hornet and the Tomcat community. Just how intense is it? I've heard stories of things like a Tomcat guy spraying mustard all over a Hornet guy's F-18 shirt at a bar, for example. <laughs> Did you guys pull pranks on each other? By the way, this question just arrived today. Yeah, I told it sounds him, like it. Perfect time. Off, uh, we're wow. going to meet Seth. I got a perfect example of that. I think Johnny was there for this one. So we had uh, two Navy F-18 squadrons on the boat with us and one Marine squadron. Mm-hmm. I think we thought of the Marine squadron as our sister squadron, to for, be honest. For sure, yeah. Yeah, because they were all Beaufort squadrons. But the other two were 86 and 82. 82 is no longer around. Yep. And uh, I think it was 86, but it might have been 82. We had like a... SDO combat helmet, you know, the helmet that they were supposed to wear for the poor bat that was on <laughs> GQ when, uh, when GQ went down. Yeah. And uh, we filled it with marbles and we all got everybody down, um, ready to go. And we stood outside their door and uh, they were having an AOM and we took this thing and opened the door and chucked it in like a grenade, marbles everywhere <laughs> outside their room. And then we all stood out there because we wanted to fight them, but uh, they were too weak to come out. Uh, well, I think to Sebastian's point... <laughs> 
there is always healthy rivalries, but in the end, we're all one team. But when nothing's going on where we really need to work together, of course, we're going to rib each other a little bit and play some pranks and have fun in port. But I was on, let's see, so your second deployment, Cosmo. Right. Sorry, your first was my second. Right. And so I missed you, Sif. Yeah. But I don't remember any... Oh, which one? Serious... You were, were you a Sidewinder? Or a... Yeah, I was Sidewinder. So uh, I was GW, JFK. Yeah. He was JFK, TR. Cat TR. was very inbred, so... Well, sure. But the point is, I thought we all worked fine together, and, and I had no qualms with anyone. I don't remember anyone doing anything to my Wheaties. But it, it's fun. It's something to do if there's nothing else going on. Yeah. The best part about a Tomcat squadron is you had twice as many people. Yeah. Right? And there's strength in numbers, right? And everybody did everything together. In an admin, anything divided by 30 is basically free. <laughs> Right, <laughs> unless you lost. This is higher so, level math right yeah, here, sunshine. So we yeah. we could throw down a pretty good party. Oh yeah, and then the Charlie guys would yeah. end up coming over, and it'd be yeah. a big air wing bash or whatever. Well, because they were coming over to get free stuff. Right, oh, sure. Right. Well, we were like there was twelve the, of us, the poor kids. But that point being made, is it safe to say the F fourteen community was kind of the last of the real fighter guys? I mean, am I dare I say, am I going to get crucified from my community for this? But big fighter like, guy. The world changed when the F fourteen went away. I mean, when, don't you think? I don't know. I, I would say that the tradition is still alive in F Squadron. That's good. Right. I, I think they try very hard, yeah. yeah. So just for background, we didn't talk about this, but both Cosmo and I were skippers of F Squadrons. Yep. And so yeah. I think we try very hard. I think really the answer to your question is times have changed. Oh, yes. Some of the squadron buffoonery, and I mean it in the best sense, is not tolerable anymore. Right. You know, we used to go do things, basic things. Like, we used to paint a lot. I know I used to paint a lot. Painting the, you know, the whole short or painting the, well, the whole short. On Dude, for a long time, there were uh, red diamonds at Fallon. Yeah, yeah. So can we explain on that? So you guys would go out surreptitiously at night Fallon. with a can of red paint and paint big red diamonds. Ten gallons of red paint. Okay. All right. So such awesome. things are not yeah. tolerated and it, it would be on Google Maps years yeah. later, right? Yeah. still there. Yeah. Right. So yeah. 2019, not so, so much? So those kind of things, not so yeah. much. And, and you know, it's that's just part of the way that we scrutinize uh, naval officers these days. And that's okay. That's just the way the times are. But we used to have a lot more ability to have fun and not necessarily have it projected where we didn't want to. Sure. And that's what the internet has kind of changed. And that. GoPros so, and everything. Yeah, else. standard yeah. stuff. Mm-hmm. Cell phones. So, um, so I think that's part of it. But I think they try very hard to have fighter spirit. It was just everybody's always trying to live up to the old generation. And I know reaching back to the old F8 guys, you know, there's a widespread notoriety. Mm-hmm. What's the word for that? For the F8 guys, the, the last of the gunfighters. Right. You know, you could make a case that that spirit has succeeded for many years after mm-hmm. that, but it may be not the same as back then. Yeah. Same thing. Sounds good. Sunshine, did you, did you ever deploy with an F14 squad? I did, okay. yes, did absolutely. You, did you see anything else that dogs needs brought and the up? Okay. Oh, my uh, God, I'm sorry. I was just amazed at the amount of hotel damage incurred <laughs> by both of those squadrons together. So even if you divide by 30 Cosmo oh, or divide dear. by 60, it, well, I guess the it was cost, free. Well, that was the, the cost is equal zero, so. but the damage yeah. is exponential. Dude, right? it's pretty epic. Excellent. Pretty epic. All right, let's bang through a couple more questions and we'll wrap this up and get out of here, guys. Kevin Drummond, who is a Patreon strike lead oh from Nebraska, he asks, this isn't necessarily related to the F-14, but we'll ask it anyway. Have you or anybody you know had a bird strike during or soon after a cat launch or before or during a trap? Is there an emergency procedure when this happens? Heaven knows how many birds strikes I've cleaned off my windscreens and leading edges of my 23 years maintaining jets and the indescribable odor from when they go down the intakes. <laughs> That's all true, yeah. So, uh, yeah, I hit one in, the, in my 717, and it smelled immediately like baked chicken yeah. in the cockpit. It was well, not a good-smelling smell. But anyway, I've not seen this. Anyone else? Were you paddles, I, by the way, Sif? I have not uh, hit a bird in a Tomcat, but I've hit a couple birds in a Super Hornet. Okay. 
one of which was at the boat, believe it or not. Like near takeoff or landing, to Kevin's question? No, it was, um, we were overseas, whatever, and, you know, the ship throws away garbage and food scraps, whatever, over the side. Somehow or another, we had picked up these little Tweety birds that were hanging out, <laughs> eating the garbage or whatever. We had a guy come in for the break, whatever, landed, and then on post-flight, the airframers were like, it is a dent in the vertical tail, and we couldn't figure out where it came from. It didn't match a tool, or you know, somebody had hit it with something. But it ended up being most likely a Tweety bird that had bounced off the tail. <laughs> all of my bird strikes, with the exception of one, I think were all post-flight. You just kind of go, oh, there's a yeah. smear of blood, maybe some feathers. Yeah. T-34 was the one that punched a hole in the wing. Ooh. Beyond that, the only time I can think of anybody that had a major bird strike where it required something was uh, actually in the FRS. It wasn't at the ship. And he hit a big bird. And it actually punched a hole in the windscreen. Mm. And uh, it was a student. He had to get a flight lead to take him all the way to landing because he couldn't see oh, out gosh. the front of it. And uh, but they nice. recovered the airplane. Cool, sunshine. Eric, you got anything uh, bird wise? Well, no, I've uh, I've sucked up a bird on basically on the takeoff roll, and I watched it go into the intake. And that not was on about the catapult, it, so. No, not on okay. the catapult. All right, so. fair enough. And then Alex from UK, he asked, "What would the drill be for a weapon that didn't release when pickled?" So I'm assuming that's a free fall weapon as opposed to a forward firing. Yeah, it's pretty straightforward. You either if you're Racks locked and the bomb was, you know, not going to go anywhere. You just take it back, hung and locked. Mm -hmm. And then worst case, uh, you could jettison it, you know, in a right. jettison. And the system area. for that is different, right? So like a car that has a brake system and a parking brake system. Right. You've got a release for normal release and then you've got an auxiliary release. It's basically what an, an extra shotgun shell mm -hmm. uh, cartridge that's in the, the brew, whatever. You want to help me with the acronym? Uh, bomb <laughs> rack unit. Bomb rack that's unit. That's right. What's yeah. that stand for? Cartridge actuation device. device. Oh, see, it's a race. Oh, wow. Very good. Cosmo's good. So Excellent. how about, would you ever employ your wingman to go check out the uh, hung ordinance, if you will? Oh, yeah. All the time. Right. Uh, it's pretty benign, really. Yeah, I mean, nothing to go to GQ over. Practice munitions hang all the time because they're so light. Yeah. Yep. So, and that's common in the Hornet or the Tomcat. doesn't matter. So, yeah. you know, it's a pretty common procedure. Well, and that's one thing that's fun about this show is that something that we all think of like, yeah, no big deal. People like Alex, they just don't know because they didn't live the lives that we've led. I mean, Absolutely. we've got collectively 100 years of service. So one thing that here. was unique about the Tomcat, and Cosmo can definitely talk about this, was the way that you could check to see whether or not each bomb oh, rail yeah. was active. That actually played in for me uh, out in combat. So yeah, could, I think I know the story this. you're going to tell. Right? Yeah, but the bottom line is you could check. It might have been with you. You can check to see whether or not you had a hot trigger is what we called it. Yeah, okay. so all the switches for your SMS, right, on a... On a storage management system. Storage management on a Charlie or Rhino was mechanical switches in the back seat, right? So I would have to manually arm up a station. In the Tomcat. Yep, select okay. the station. There was no automatic sequence that the jet would figure out for me for, like, CG, right? So you had to be smart enough to go, hey, I don't want to drop this one first because it's too far aft, oh, or so I want to get rid of it. We're manually... Yeah. You or how? Yeah. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Or, yeah, yeah. Too, so, whatever. You know, yeah. figuring out which one came off first and all that. Wow. That was all you guys. We did off. a clear and turn mm. off the cat, and you're headed down at... You'd check a hot trigger. You'd select a station, master arm on, and go, hey, is it working, right? Mm. The cool thing, what I think Sif was going to get into, was um, there's a one story where these guys uh, in our squadron were overseas in real mission. They had a station that was hung, yeah. didn't work, and they were running out of ordnance. Not hot triggered. Basically, you know, it wasn't going to function normally. And in that case, none of the uh, fuses are going to arm. Nothing's going to – electrical pulses won't go to the weapon because it's hung. Right. But the wires for the guidance kit and the fins are still hardwired to the brew, right? So they'll get pulled anyway. And mm -hmm. so these guys were like – 
hey, let's selectively jettison the bomb. And since it's a laser-guided bomb, we know the wires will pull the fins and the guidance unit and the the battery will fire off and it'll at least guide. It'll be like a full metal jacket round out of your 1911 pistol, right? Mm -hmm. And it'll still guide. So it won't blow up. There's a lot of inertia there, energy. Oh, yeah. Yeah. Mass time velocity. Enough to pretty much tear a truck in half. Yep. So, uh, you know, (laughs) improvise, adapt, overcome. Sure. Yeah, they're like, poop, select jet in the basket, you know, for the weapon, Uh fire the laser, so what's interesting about that is the Rio actually got to pickle the bomb because it's a select jet. It was in the back. So you can't do it from the front seat. So instead of the pilot, I happen to know this one. So, yeah. so the pilot doing it, it was, yeah, yeah. the Rio got to do the whole meal deal. Because normally the pilot fires the weapons, shoots the... Correct. So the pickle button the was in the front. Mm-hmm. The jettison stuff is in the back. So okay. again, all decoupled. Okay. Wow. And the final question comes from Elliot. And he said, what was the biggest explosion, intended or otherwise, that you're a witness to during your time as a naval aviator? I imagine you guys were around a fair number of big bangs, but what was the biggest? Mm, I have a good one. Good one, Oh, okay. Yeah. Way back when, I actually blew up a helicopter. <laughs> On purpose? Yeah, yeah. Okay. Good job. It was full of gas, and I dropped a 1,000-pound laser guide bomb on it. Uh-huh. This was overseas somewhere. This thing had crashed, basically, and... Uh, the, the crash, but didn't oh, blow up or no, something? No, that's right. Yeah. Okay. you got to get rid of. So. Yeah, and so higher headquarters is like, hey, you know, all the guys you know, were fine. They got rescued. Mm-hmm. But we wanted to go back and make sure this thing didn't fall into enemy hands. So the Charlies, of course, couldn't find the helicopter. Oh, of course. If they all oh, ran out of gas. They oh, they ran out of gas first. That's <laughs> and they ran out of gas. <laughs> oh, so, and. Yeah. Sorry. So we were the only guys left over, and uh, we found this thing in the snow, and it had crashed. The tail had broken. It was full of gas. And it was this beautiful moonlit night. Stars are out. Epic. Night vision goggles. But, you know, you look underneath and a GBU-16 okay. to a, a helicopter full of gas is an impressive mushroom cloud of parts and fuel. and so Everything yeah. worked as advertised. Yeah. The, so the sad part <laughs> the is it was one of, one of ours. You know, yeah. and, well, but it was compromised at that point. So That's a good one. You saw you the, saw the yeah. mother of all bombs? Yeah, I saw the mother Where did you see that? Yeah. Uh, Somewhere. Okay. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, I Somewhere where it was employed? Yeah. Okay. Yeah. And it was a very big, cool-looking thing. But, I mean, again, from a long way away, everything that you see is on a TV screen. So yeah. if you've uh, seen a TV screen, right, mm-hmm. it's the same, right, what we're seeing in the cockpit. I mean, from a cockpit looking out 6, 10, 15 miles away, mm-hmm. it's, you know. Tiny. Although that one was particularly big. I would say. Um, I would say the biggest one I've ever seen was... Uh, was doing any kind of actual ground fact work and not necessarily in country. Most of that was training. So if you've been out on in the Fallon Ranges mm-hmm. up on the stands, you've seen some pretty big bombs uh, go off. Or uh, I know for me, my favorite was to get up on the top of the mountain and we used to control from up there. Yeah. And that was pretty fun. I bet. So And you can feel it. But uh, it's yep. not the same. Nope. Well, do you guys miss the big fighter? I'm, I'm guessing, in a sense. I mean, is it... Joe, I miss all fighters. <laughs> Me too. Speaking from a point of view of yes. just putting yeah. out personnel issues all day, yes. right? Yeah. I drive a okay. golf cart at work. <laughs> you oh, do drive a golf I cart. Do. It's awesome. Yeah, I'm sorry. Fitting that golf cart with that right. it. Yeah, very much so. I would say every airplane has its goods and its others. Sure. What I miss most about the Tomcat was that it was the last airplane that I flew, not including a GA aircraft, where... You actually flew it. In a Hornet or a Super Hornet, when you command something, you command a roll rate, you command mm-hmm. a pitch rate, or you, you know, an F-16, shoot, if you let go of it, it's going to go like an Airbus, exactly where you left it. Right. It doesn't change. Yeah. An F-14, when you pull back on the stick, you were 
using hydraulics to move the stabilators to exactly, you know, to whatever degree that you were supposed to do. Right. So everything that you did in that airplane was you. And you could get yourself in a lot of trouble because it wouldn't tell you not to. As opposed to the Hornet where you do something and it says, nah, I'm not going to do that. That's right. <laughs> There's no computers. So I do miss that part. It was really the last real unbelievable, powerful machine that you were completely in control of. The other thing I miss, I'll just tie one on there, is the people yeah. and the camaraderie, yeah. right? There's something cool about a squadron in general, mm-hmm. right? And you guys know that. But oh, yeah. twice as many people that we had was pretty cool. But the maintainers that worked on that plane, like yeah. we, we said to you earlier, yeah. 55 maintenance man hours. I mean, these dudes were like not just maintainers or mechanics. They were like craftsmen and yeah. artisans is what our, yeah. our first skipper would say. Yeah. When I was line division officer, I had a night check supervisor who ended up being my master chief when I was a skipper, who ended up, who I talked to today. He's uh, he's going out to Hawaii to be the master chief at Hickam. So, I mean, they were just amazing people, and they did, they worked ungodly hours. Yeah. Well, and to be fair, we should get some of them on this show because they really have a voice, and they are, I mean, if they don't do what they do, we can't do what we do. Absolutely. And so I think the four of us certainly appreciate their efforts and what they do, and they are the unsung heroes, no doubt about it. Cosmo, I'm going to ask you something, and I didn't tell you I would, so if you want to punt, you can. But I punt. Uh, <laughs> on this show, we have a lot of listeners who want to do what we do. Dan, yeah. We have a lot of people who want to live the lives that we've led. Now, Sif, you're the man. You oh. became a pilot. You flew the F-14. You flew the F-18. You had a squadron. You retired. You're about to go to the airlines. I mean, you've got it. Cosmo, you ended up as a naval flight officer. My question to you is, is that what you wanted to do? Was there something that forced you to do that? And how have you then come to grips with that? And I don't mean come to grips like, gee, you lost. How do you feel? But not everybody joins the Navy to be an NFO, but you did it and did it well. And and what would you say to the young person out there who maybe wants to be a pilot like Sif, but ends up like Cosmo? My situation is unique in all of my contemporaries at the same time. There was no LASIK surgery back then. There was no PRK. So the discriminator for naval flight officer versus pilot was your eyesight. 2020. Mm-hmm. 2020, right? Yeah. Not so uh, anymore. Not so anymore, right? And so I've benefited from all the technology. I got my eyes cut when I was the XO of squadron right, right before deployment. And it was like high-definition TV for the first time, right? Mm-hmm. But that was the discriminator. Nowadays, most guys, I think, at the academy or you know, in your civilian life, before you join the military, you can get your eyes fixed. That's how folks end up in the in the pilot category. So for me, it was, I knew when I was in, in high school, my eyes, uh, my father wore glasses. And so I was like 20, 70 or whatever. For me, it was if, uh, and my dad was in the Air Force as a weather officer. You know, if I went to the Air Force, I think you could fly cargo planes, you know, with, with correctable vision, with spectacles, mm-hmm. you know, under some number. And I was in there, but I'm like, I really don't want to be in the Air Force. You don't want to fly River Dongpu out of Hong Kong? I don't want to fly cargo planes. Like I said earlier, like, I didn't know what I wanted to be when I grew up. Going to the Navy was cool because there was all this stuff. There were ships, submarines, Marine Corps. I mean, I played Marine Corps yeah. summer camp. Like I did too. You guys probably did. Yeah. And I was like, hey, that's cool. I'm probably not going to be you know, what I want to do at mm-hmm. 5 in the morning every morning. And then, you know, my first ride in an airplane in flight school at uh, Pensacola, Mid, yeah. which was unbelievable. I mean, my story maybe would scare people was we were up in uh, T-34 over Softly or whatever. Oh, and a mm-hmm. uh, guy I'm flying with, Lieutenant, he's like showing me an aileron roll, right? And he did it. He's like, hey, you want to fly the plane? Yeah, absolutely. So I 10 degrees nose up, 
full hard right on stick. Mm -hmm. And as soon as I hit pure inverted, I froze <laughs> because the canopy came off. Oh, and so Ooh, the whole that's a good one. the whole canopy wow. goes flying back, right? A slid back or came off? Slid back, okay, right? Because it wasn't latched or whatever. But I was basically like an old war II fighter all of a sudden, <laughs> and uh, my little boom mic wind, wasn't yeah. working. I couldn't hear anything, and so I just stopped. You know, froze what I was doing. So he righted the plane up, and I better close the canopy, right? So what do you do? I put my arm out the window to grab Oops. the canopy. At 200 miles an hour, dislocated, and my whole arm is like flapping, <laughs> cool. you know, in the slipstream. And I had to grab my sleeve, you know, my flight suit, and pull it back in. And I was like, "Well, that didn't work." And I look up, and the lieutenant's laughing his off in the front seat, and he's like giving me this motion where you reach behind your head to get the latch. That's right. <laughs> so then I close it, and the canopy, everything's all quiet. And he goes, "Man, that was awesome. You want to do that again?" <laughs> and I was like, "Absolutely." So right. much better than mine. <laughs> nice. Yeah. So, you know, after that, I was like, man, aviation is the way to go. And whether it's a naval flight officer or pilot, it's pretty cool. The end of the story, I guess, is at the time I was a flight school student, the T2 was down. Remember, you guys remember uh, that? The T2 yeah, Buckeye was I busted. Mm -hmm. So I did my advanced flight training in an AT-38 in Columbus Air Force Base. Oh, T-38? Basically F-5, yeah, right? Yeah, yeah, yeah. F-5, sorry. F-5 with bombs and gun. Mm -hmm. It was just bombs. Anyways, the Air Force up there, when, when we checked in, it was me, um, another Rio candidate or whatever, and a Marine Corps. I guess we are just Navy guys. But the comment made by the skipper of the training squadron, he's an Air Force colonel, was like, hey, we got some uh, naval flight officers of the class. He's like, at least you guys are respected in your service. Mm -hmm. And I was mm. like, wow. Super powerful, right? Yeah. Because yeah, in the Air Force, it's different. Yeah. And I don't know if it is today or not. But I hope not. I'd say in the Marine Corps, too. I was like, oh, holy cow, you know. And true to form, in all of my squadrons I've been in, you know, of course, I've been in two-seat squadrons, but right. aside from the banter and the rivalry from single-seat guys and two-seat guys, but, you know, above and beyond, it's an equal profession. I agree. It is. Yeah. Very much so. And yeah. I've been in both. And uh, I can say without a doubt that I enjoyed. He used to talk about it, the two-seat, you know, person who's brought up two-seat, and a truly two-seat and a person who's brought up single seat, the person who's brought up two seat just trusts the person in back. And there's a synergy that develops. Mm -hmm. It's not that you don't look just make sure that everybody's doing their job, but I mean, you don't worry about it. If you're a single seat person and you've transitioned to a two seat, a lot of times you QA it. There's a difference between those two, between the synergy and the QA. Right. doesn't mean you can't do the same job, but the TCC in my mind was developed to shoot. We put it together and that's tactical crew coordination. Mm -hmm. We put it together to help folks that were brought up single seat transition to the two seat cockpit, mm -hmm. as opposed to people who were brought up in a two seat cockpit and could just, it was never my job to make sure that he was doing his job. Yeah. Doesn't See, mean that we can train each other. The difference though, in the Tomcat was you couldn't do the other crew members job. If you're in the front seat, you couldn't do right. any of the radar modes. You couldn't do any of the navigation. Whereas in the F-18F, you're kind of sharing, hey, why don't you do this and I'll do Everybody that. Everybody can do everything. That's right. You know, yeah. Aside from, yeah. you know. Actually yeah. moving the stick. Moving the throttles Which or whatever. Which doesn't require as much. It's even more important now, I think, for the burgeoning, you know, Wizzo folks that join the military or yeah. join the Navy, that they have to be even better. Because if you aren't good at your job pilot will take over yes. or a weak pilot you know the wizzo can That's pick right. up a lot of that yeah. because you can do everyone's tasks and so there's a you know way ahead now where you have to be really good at your job so that you're relevant and yep. that you can the best advice i ever got was from uh, slimer richardson and it was just basically when i was going in was was to stay ahead of the airplane stay one plane length ahead of the airplane it mm -hmm. was, it's so basic right and truly doesn't matter if you're in the back seat or the front seat the aviation game at least in the military it's not about flying the airplane 
I mean, don't get me wrong, but you know as well as I, even in a 1v1 scenario that is really tough, the guy who's ahead of the game, he's thinking three or four turns down the way, that's the guy, it's chess. You're setting yourself up to put yourself into position and you're giving yourself the options to be able mm-hmm. to make a decision. So the guy that's farther ahead and able to fly the parameters to put himself into those decision points and then make the correct decision, that's the guy who's going to win every single time. And it doesn't matter if you're in the back seat or the front seat. That's true either way. And that's what I think aviation is to me. It's about planning and then executing the plan and the decision-making that goes along that platform. But while you're doing that, you're always planning further downrange. For sure. And that is the mark of a good pilot, right? Is never let the aircraft take you somewhere your brain hasn't gotten to five minutes before. So Sure. And I imagine in the backseat, it's exactly the same because they don't want to be there either. Yeah. <laughs> true. <laughs> true. All right, guys. Well, as always on this show, we say we could go on forever, but... Since we're out of refreshments, why don't we uh, wrap this up? We have two final questions we always ask our guests, and that is, what does the future hold? So, Seth, I think we kind of know for you, you're trying to get an airline gig, but you're settling down not far from where you grew up, right? Well, no. Actually, we're moving. Oh, you are? Okay. (laughs) Yeah, yeah. Well, you're just there now. Yeah, we're just there now, and actually we had a house showing today. Uh, We're looking at moving in the south closer to my family Okay. and uh, making sure that they're good and uh, looking to work into the airlines. I think everything looks good there. And then uh, for me personally, I'm building on an airplane, and I love it. I'm learning the maintenance side, and it's it's awesome. Good. So. Okay. Cosmo, what about you? What's the future hold? I mean, you're you're still playing the game, sort of. Is this it, or are you going to take another set of orders after this? <laughs> I don't know. Sips pointing out his shoulder saying, Admiral. <laughs> Admiral. Admiral Cosmo, come on. I don't know the answer. Um, this is a different game being in the uh, installation command, but it's cool. It's Better than being at the Pentagon, which is where I came from before this, by any stretch. <laughs> it's fun to be back okay. in the Navy again with sailors yeah. and uh, the typical types of stuff that you see. Uh-huh. Yeah, I don't know. I'm at 22 years, coming in 23 here. We'll be here through, what, 25 or so. I got a couple young kids. They pick this as their, you know, the base they want to go to, which is a strange story in itself because nowhere in the Navy do you ever get your first choice in orders, right? Mm-hmm. Uh, so when I, you know, plopped this on the dinner table one night, I said, hey, kids, you guys pick. You guys are always along for the ride, you know, what hmm. we do. Do you want Guantanamo or... It was bad. Uh, <laughs> do you want, do you want Diego Garcia, you know? Yeah. And uh, my kids were like, yeah, we went on the beach. And so this yeah. is a just absolutely awesome place to live. Payback tour. Yeah, I mean, Good. as Sif knows, Lemoore, I've been in Lemoore for probably 10 years, right? Mm. Central California. Yep. It's different than here. <laughs> right? A bit. A bit. So we but love there here. there are goods there, too. Yeah, oh, yeah. no doubt about it. So we'll see. If we're still okay. having fun, yeah, we'll right. see what happens. Well, we'll have to stay in touch with you. Yeah. While, while you have the mic, we'll start with you. The final question of the night always is, how did you get your call sign? So dupes, I think we can f- figure out uh, based on the last name. What, but Cosmo? But Cosmo. I know? don't know. I don't normally answer that question. Okay. Yeah. You can punt. You'd be our first guest to really? punt. Really? Yeah. Mm-hmm. No pressure. Like, I haven't told anybody at work. You would only tell about 10,000 people. Yeah, so, so it's not yeah, that I like many. to be cool. a little mysterious on this. You want to make something up on the fly? Do you want Sif to go first? So... Mine's not really that entertaining, I'm going to be honest. It actually is, but... I mean, I showed up. <laughs> That's literally what happened. That's my new guy call sign. I thought it was like, shut your flipping hole. It is. That's my new guy call sign. I walked in, Gordon McDonald had that written on the blackboard. Before you even in. had a chance to open your hole? Yep. I had two choices. I could either live up to it or I could cry, I could cry about it. <laughs> I did both, and so... I'm not sure I That's a good this. ego defense. I yeah. like that, Seth. Well done. Well played. Back to you, Cosmo. There's a point of order there. I think that call sign came up after you got there. Oh! oh. The second I walked in. I'll never forget it. 
in big. I mean, you took well, up. Well, to be whole fair, he was already there when you showed up. Yeah. So his memory might be more credible. Well, I don't know. I mean, he can't remember how, what nine minus six is. Oh, everyone knows that's five. All right, come on. Come on, come on. Let's <laughs> go. On. I think the, the story is more like. Well, let me just put it this way. I remember. Uh, I was fungus at the rag. I remember okay. in a Tomcat there was mm-hmm. an enunciator panel, right? So we didn't have. Oh, that was caution. a master caution panel. We didn't have uh, caution lights, right. necessarily at firelights, whatever. But we had this big matrix of like squares, so like a grid, and whatever. Yeah, it was like was eight happening. by eight, it was whatever. Charming uh, man. Sifir likes to talk a lot, right? <laughs> and so one of the JOs had taken the uh, caution enunciator panel and changed all the cautions from like bleed air left to like ICS hot. <laughs> Stuck bike. <laughs> that Intercom system. Not for real, honest, right? Was, was this like a drawing or something? Was, you know that? Do you remember cool. in the back of the Natop? So you, the Natop's the fold uh, out. The you could do the big, yeah, 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 yeah. The big fold, fold out, out. Okay. and it had the, the thing. So printed. So, they, so we had a giant, in the Tomcat, there was a giant warning and caution panel. Unlike the uh, Hornet, they had the little one, right? This big thing. That's how you got all your, what happened, right? And he changed every one of them to my call sign. Or like something well, something, a play on, like, comp <laughs> two overload. Or just to my general right? personality. Radio hot. <laughs> Stuck mic. It did make me mad. I'm not going to Okay, I'm so, Seth, so your point of view is that they called you this before you even got there, so you lived up to it. I, I, could, do, was... I could do two things. I could right. whine, right. or I could live up to it. I did both. Okay, fair enough. <laughs> Bravo, so. sir. Bravo. Cosmo, come on. We're not going to let you up. you got to make something Mine's up. Mine's dumb. I, I mean, but I choose the mysterious, the mysterious life. Okay. You could, you know, do you know the background? You weren't even there. For now. Yeah. Does your wife know? Yes. Well, she's going to listen, so you just tell her again. All right, we'll let you off the hook. If All right, really hey, that's cool. cool. That's cool. You want off I the like, hook? I like to remain a little okay. serious. Well, remain <laughs> Man of mystery. All right, fair enough. <laughs> Very well. Well, guys, thank you for your time tonight. Thanks for flying the F-14, I guess. I don't know. I mean, if you didn't, you wouldn't be here. Yeah. Or in some other capacity. Kind of a weird thing to say. I don't know. It just came out. But... Gosh, I mean, between the two of you, almost 50 years of service, and there's a lot to be said for that. Plus, you're still going, so yeah. thank you, Cosmo, yeah, for that. congrats. And That's awesome. You're doing everything uh, to keep the base going here in Coronado. Seven bases, right? Eight. Bunch eight. of bases, yeah. Eight, bases. Off- eight. eight properties. Inland, offshore, everything. So, excellent. And you will fleet up to the command officer here in probably another year or so, right? Another year, yeah. Yeah, okay, great. Guys, I don't know how else to sit here and, and, and thank you. So, uh, Sunshine, what else is there? No, just uh, great chatting with great Americans. So thank you for your time, fellas. Thanks Thanks for having us. Thanks, guys. All right. Well, I think we can wrap it up. What do we say, Sunshine? Let's get out of here. Let's do it. See you guys. See ya. See ya. All right. Once again, a big thanks to Sif and Cosmo for coming on the show and telling us all about the F-14. I thought that was a great interview. Hopefully you learned a lot. As always, on discussions like this, there are many new terms and acronyms, and you can always find those listed in the glossary section of the Fighter Pilot Podcast website. Now, as stated at the top of the show, Heapler Simulations is debuting the F-14 for DCS World, effective March 13th, 2019. And I just want to let you know that the company spent thousands of hours replicating every aspect of this iconic plane and worked closely with subject matter experts who logged hundreds of hours in the simulator and provided input on every tiny detail to help create the most accurately simulated F-14 experience possible. Visit www.digitalcombatsimulator.com or check out our teammate Jabber's YouTube channel as he has provided some tutorials for the F-14 along with other related content. You can find a link for Jabber's channel along with the Heat Blur and Eagle Dynamics website links in the show notes for this episode. 
Just very quickly, want to thank our new Patreon division leads, Nick C., Aldous Voboda, Ed Voris, Michaels Jorick, Jamie Ledbetter, Richard Goyette, Dustin Kellerman, and Kay Morton Magelli. We also have one new Patreon strike lead, Luis Cerdo. I want to remind everybody the views expressed in this presentation are the personal views of the hosts and our guests and do not necessarily represent the position of the Department of Defense or its components. So we'll leave you once again with the Top Gun theme cover by my son Slater of the band Jam and Slate. We'll leave a link in the show notes to his band so you can check out some of his other music. But otherwise, that will do it for this episode. We'll see you here next time on the Fighter Pilot Podcast. See ya. Thanks to our title sponsor, National University. National University is committed to supporting veterans, active duty personnel, and military families through flexible online courses and master's and doctoral programs in high-demand fields, providing excellent career advancement opportunity. National University is a yellow-ribbon school that proudly accepts the post-9-11 GI Bill and goes the extra mile by offering additional assistance to cover expenses that may not be covered by the GI Bill. To learn more, visit nu.edu forward slash veteran.